there, creatives. My name is Cecilia, and I'd like to welcome you to our weekly podcast, where we get to hear stories and insights from leaders in the Catholic creative world every week. This week, we're doing something a little different. With the summit quickly approaching and tickets about to go on sale, we thought we would give you a little taste of last year's summit. For this podcast, I've chosen two of the breakout sessions from last year to combine into one awesome listening experience. Patrick's talk got me fired up about my call as a Catholic creative to use my unique gifts to live the new renaissance in our world today. And then from Joe's talk, I enjoyed stories about artists who, when faced with unique constraints and challenges in their work, found creative solutions to overcome said challenges and create beautiful works of art. Hopefully this podcast will get you excited for the upcoming summit. Let's check it out. Well, uh, I might just get things under the road. It's a pleasure pleasure to speak with you guys here. Uh, it's fun for me. I've never been to Texas before, so it's my first time in the Deep South. Uh, I had my first waffle in the shape of Texas this morning. Uh, so I feel, I feel like a real American. My stomach exploded with Texan patriotism. Um, but it's actually nice to be... In the shape of Texas, yeah, exactly. So, but it's nice actually to be in a state that uh, is in constantly in a state of uh, threatened succession to the rest of the U.S. Uh, and thinks it's really the number one state. It really feels like I haven't left California, um, which is where I actually work now. But uh, no, when I arrived uh, yesterday, today, yesterday, with um, my boss Matt, who spoke this morning, uh, I think people were a little bit shocked at me walking around carrying a stroller and Matt carrying a little infant and us carrying all the bags. Uh, I think people got to get the wrong impression a little bit, which is some, uh, felt like taking a selfie and saying, thank God for a Begafell. But then I realized we'd probably both lose our jobs. Um, no, but I have a bit of a um, tendency to cause strange reactions. When I, for, I used to work in New York City for Cardinal Dolan. I ran Young Adult Outreach for about three or four years there. And my first day in, I was making a little piece of uh, paper, a pencil, just some notes of things I needed for my desk. And I, you know, was writing things down. I made a mistake, and I looked around my desk and couldn't find it. I sort of, I leaned back. I'm in the hall, by the way, the family life office. So there's the abortion, bereavement, NFP, sisters, priests, all sort of thing. I just leaned back and I said, "Does anyone have a spare rubber?" Oh no. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I know. Yeah, so it's made of rubber. You rub things out, and it, you know, it's a rubber anyway. So anyway, that's all the time I needed to fill today. So it was a pleasure um, being here. Um, no, it's a, it's a pleasure being with you guys, a bunch of room of creatives. Um, all of you are much more uh, involved in different aspects of creative work uh, than I think I am. I work in the comms team, but my experience uh, prior to coming to LA, uh, working with them as a digital analyst, was working for dioceses in the States and Australia, largely uh, uh, advising bishops on public policy matters uh, and media engagement a little bit. Um, and thinking strategically about how we engage culture and, and teach the faith and pass it on and things like that. So I'm going to be sharing some of my thoughts uh, from that perspective rather than from my specifics of my current role. Uh, Erica Tai, who's here, will be presenting uh, in the next section more on the nature of, of beauty and I won't steal her thunder partly because I could never steal Erica's thunder um, and never be as anywhere as interesting. Uh, so I'm going to focus a little bit more on where we stand as Catholics uh, in the church politically culturally and religiously uh, in the States and a little bit in the West. Um, and why I think it's important to think a little bit about that is because all of us are sort of very much got our heads buried into our work that we're doing creatively. And it's sometimes very important to situate or contextualize the work that we're doing in the culture, to know exactly where things are at, so to know that we're receptive to where things are going. 
Um, and I think that's good. My background's uh, academically is in philosophy, and so I think something philosophers as well as creatives might have in common is that we are very good at thinking outside the box, but sometimes we're very good about thinking a little bit too far outside the box uh, and getting a bit too abstract. So it's always good to ground our ideas or our creativity in the realities of the present moment. All right, so I'm gonna do three things briefly. Where we're at, what responses we might take. There's a lot of conversation going up amongst uh, higher level uh, leaders in different communities, religious communities, about what we need to do now from where we're at. Uh, and then if I have a bit of time or if I could just skip it, one, some duties we might have as, as creatives in bringing beauty to the culture. Anyway, I'm not gonna go on uh, too long. I know this is a Catholic Creative Summit, but I'm gonna take some inspiration from the great Protestant of Protestants, King Henry VIII, who was often quite fond of saying to his eight or so wives, um, I won't keep you here too long. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Alrighty, so, well, as the uh, Chinese warning or saying goes, we live in uh, interesting times. With the unexpected election of Donald Trump late last year, rocking the political and media establishment, and now the first few months of his presidency passing, it looks like the political situation is still and will likely be fraught with tension, I think, for the next four years. The Republicans have got power in more places than they thought, and this has both caught them by surprise. We can witness the continual bumbling over the healthcare replacement to the ACA. It's also inflamed the Democrats, who still don't really have any game plan except opposing everything the Republicans do. Uh, and with Trump in office, it's likely that things will probably bounce back and forth between good and bad decisions on and off in a fairly unpredictable way for the foreseeable future. So the next major controversy or news story or fake news story uh, is only a day or two or a tweet or two away. Culturally, where do things stand? Um, well, I think uh, we're very much more divided now than we were ever before. And this division or fragmentation or separation is economic, geographic and social. So economically, the distance between the haves and the haves nots, the rich and the poor, uh, is becoming even more dramatic in certain places. Uh, Charles Murray, a well-known economist and sociologist, um, has recounted this in one of his major pieces of work back in 2012, but many others have noted it. Uh, geographically, this division or separation has also between major metropolitan regions, areas of influence, New York, LA, DC, and the broad swath of what others might call, you know, middle America, which isn't just a geographic region, but also a cultural region and that flows into the cultural thing, where this division is between, you've got traditionally minded, religious folk, conservative type folk, lower to middle class, blue collar workers, against self-identified progressive cultural elites and sort of those leading on the, on the left, so to speak. Now all of these factors, geographic, economic, social, uh, incline these two sides or many other sides to see each other as foreigners, as not Americans or un-American or anti-American, uh, non-citizens, people either trying to rip the country back to the dark ages or to some dystopian or utopian future, depending on which side you sort of pick. So fragmentation and division and difference and disagreement on social, ethical and moral matters uh, just seems, I think, now to be a permanent feature of the cultural landscape in the States and certainly throughout the West. So the next major controversy or news story is only a protest or two away. Okay, what's happening religiously, church-wise? Uh, well, I think it's self-evident that over the last 40 to 50 years, um, the things that have happened in the wider culture have put the church uh, very much at odds with or in a confrontational stance 
uh, for quite some time, you know, whether it be over issues concerning life, sex, and either below the belt type issues uh, and more. Now that's led to a lot of um, robust uh, engagement in some quarters. In others, it's led to a bit of compromise and capitulation of the culture. Uh, and others sort of more laid back avoidance or I just wish it would be over type reactions. Uh, even the three most recent popes have had somewhat quite different approaches to how we engage culture. You know, Pope John Paul II was very much trying hard to engage secular world, uh, engage the secular culture with a number of encyclicals and letters, um, certainly obviously in the beginning of his pontificate with communism, but then later much more to philosophers and then to, um, to ethicists, to moral theologians, very much trying to grapple with the world. Pope Benedict um, did this somewhat, although he was much more sort of a teacher-oriented, um, uh, teacher pope, a magisterial pope, um, and focused on some of that as well, but particularly a little bit more with Islam. You might remember some of his famous speeches like the Regensburg speech. Uh, and then Pope Francis has been quite different um, to the two previous popes before him. He hasn't quite as engaged much with uh, the secular world, the outside world, like um, Pope Benedict and uh, John Paul II, uh, and is much more focused, I think, on sort of reshaping the way Christians view others and those on the peripheries and those in the externals, and that's and focus certainly on the concept and the live reality of mercy. Um, but that's sort of in some way a shifting away from the sort of outward looking uh, secular engagement of the previous two um, popes. Where's Christianity in different parts of the world? In, in different parts of the world, sorry. Well, in, in Europe, it's continually uh, in decline. Uh, you can special it out, sort of focus in on different regions, but generally it's uh, continued its sort of historical uh, malaise or forgetfulness about its past. Uh, the sexual abuse scandals um, has ro have rocked the church, certainly in the States, uh, over here from 2002 onwards when you guys had your long Lent. It then hit Ireland pretty heavily. Uh, in Australia it has in the last five or six years with the, a big study into how institutions as well as the Catholic Church have responded to sexual abuse. And that's led many of uh, the church leaders uh, in the West to, this, to the point of being very careful and worried about speaking out on moral issues, especially sexual issues where it feels like their authority as teachers has been uh, compromised and really um, sort of shut down and silenced. Uh, where Christians are numerically in the States uh, and throughout some other English-speaking nations is, is a little bit difficult to predict. Um, there's been talk of a lot of the rise of nuns, these are N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, unfortunately, are those who, who don't I, no longer identify or self-identify as uh, Christians, as Catholics. Uh, it's kind of hard at the moment to tell whether that's just cultural Catholics or Christians now just sort of accepting the fact that they're not really um, cultural, uh, they're not really Catholics or Christians, or whether it's actually more of a wider, scarier collapse of, of Christianity. Time will tell in some better surveys, but it, had led, it has led many leaders thinking, where's the future really for Christians uh, in the States uh, and in the West? And so, uh, particularly over the last few years, but even more so over the last year, where it looked very, very likely that um, uh, Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president, had many religious leaders freaking out, thinking that basically the onslaught against Christians that they'd felt uh, throughout the Obama presidency would just be continued for another four, eight years. Um, so the next major controversy is only a few tweets or papal airplane interviews away. So. Uh, now, that's the first section, where are we sort of at? Now, what are responses we might take? Well, that was a pessimistic part of my talk, over and done with. Um, 
Uh, so what responses have there been to this situation and what might we take? Well, I'm giving a, a larger talk on this particular topic to a bunch of young adults at a Theology on Tap in Des Moines, Iowa. So if you're looking for a holiday destination, I hear Iowa is the place to go to. Uh, so I'm doing that on Monday. So I'm just gonna distill some of the responses to uh, four here, what we could do and what one's Catholic creatives would, how Catholic creatives would look if they took either of these four responses. So the first response is a pretty culturally popular one. It's the go with the flow option. Uh, essentially just embrace relativism. You know, look, there's differences between people and divisions in culture. There's just no such thing as moral truth. It's just people's opinions and they're all different. So that's option one. Now I think if Catholic creatives were to adopt this approach, it'd look something like, you know, they'd expose themselves to the prevailing temperaments of marketing folk and likely just look to what works um, and appeals to people without much thought about the substance of the work that you're actually doing. And you'd be light on some matters and you just sort of avoid certain topics or other issues. Uh, you just work essentially as a vending machine for your employer, a button pusher, as Corey said before. Just, they want that, you do that, that's fine. So that's the go with the flow, embrace relativism option. The second one would be to the fight back option. Uh, this is uh, just like some uh, radical religious groups, like radical Islamist groups, perceive much of the West as being decadent and, you know, sort of under the hold of secularism. They're fighting back, literally fighting back um, through terrorist activity. Now, obviously, Catholic creatives wouldn't adopt such approach uh, here with physical violence, but there is a temptation sometimes to use um, our creativity, our skills for tearing people down or institutions down. You find this sometimes typically on the idea of the alt-right uh, that has been much talked about since with, the, the, um, with President Trump. Um, people who sort of want to use humor or irony in a deeply divisive way. Sort of Milo meets Stephen Bannon in the marketing world. So that could be a sort of a, an option too. The third option is the retreat option. Uh, this is sort of, of withdrawing into remnant minority faith-sustaining local communities and just say, look, we've lost the culture wars, same-sex marriage, abortion, whatever it is, we've now just got to take stock, bunker down and fortify our own base so that we can carry on the light of the faith in brighter days. Now, this has been a very popular option uh, discussed under the idea of the Benedict Option, which some of you may have heard of. It was um, based on St. Benedict who founded, St. Benedict of Nursia who founded the monasteries. But the Benedict Option itself is a, is a tag used by a Southern Baptist turned Catholic, turned Eastern Orthodox uh, pastor, Rod Dreyer, who's been saying basically we should, all religious people should essentially withdraw somewhat, bunker down and ride things out and forget about politics of the world. Um, so if Catholic creatives adopted this, it might think that any real engagement with the secular world is really lost at this point. It's too far gone. So we should focus on iconography, sacred images, cultivating those types of skills to build up our own, be uh, our own base, fixed church bulletins and diocesan websites, but not much else. That could be the third one. And then the last option, which I'll finish on, I'll cut out the last part of the talk, um, is the R&R. &R. Uh, this is not rest and relaxation. Uh, this is reform and renew, or if I was to re-adopt it with a third R, the renaissance option. Um, and this is the radical option. Uh, this is the one that goes against the grain. Uh, and it's actually a little bit rebellious from the surrounding culture. Now, I think it's radical in that classic sense of the word Radical, the radical derived from radix, meaning root, by insisting that we go back to the foundational insights, the traditions and customs and wisdom that we've received through previous generations of saints, sages and sinners, and try to bring that wisdom and truth to bear to a modern world and a culture which is very confused.
Now, I think this option doesn't pretend that there's no such thing as difference or disagreement in the ethical or cultural landscape. It doesn't deny that there's anxiety in the political sphere. And it doesn't dispute that there's disagreements over in the religious sphere. It accepts all of this as an obvious, even if an unfortunate feature of the present age, or really any age, to be honest. But what it gets excited about and thinks creatively about is how to persuade winsomely and lovingly all of those around us about the truths that we know either with our own minds or by revelation, truths of the human condition through both faith uh, and reason. So reform and renew, a bit of well-needed uh, genuine R&R, I think, for the culture. And that usually means bringing the best of our own gifts, talents, creativity uh, and skills to the world through what we can do. And I think if Catholic creatives adopted this, which is what it seems Catholic Creatives has, at least in the guiding vision that it espouses on its website and the talk that we had from Matt this morning, I think it can be a really creative force within the church, bringing that beauty and wisdom that we've had to the confusing political, cultural and religious moment that we live in. And I think Pope Benedict anticipated this a little bit when he spoke of the idea of a creative minority. So he spoke about this when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, but he spoke about it as Pope Benedict to a creative minority. What he thought there was, he was relying upon the words of a historian, whose name I've forgotten, I think it's A.J. Sayers, um, who was disagreeing with another historian about how we should understand civilizational cultures and decline. There was one historian who basically said that civilizations rise like organisms and then they die like organisms. And this other historian said, well, no, cultures and civilizations are like souls. And you need, once a civilization rises, you need a creative minority within that culture to be able to reanimate it when it's declining. And so what Pope Benedict was pointing to there was the idea that within culture, there are religious people, people who are spiritually inclined, who can with their gifts, even if they're a minority in that culture, can creatively inspire a culture and save it from decadence. And uh, I think that's what Catholic creatives can do, become a creative minority even within the church to reanimate re and revivify our engagement with a world that very much needs the healing balm of the beauty and wisdom of of the church. So that's all I had. Thank you. Dear everyone, this is Anthony. I just really wanted to say that this has been a big year for the community. And last year, we didn't know what the Catholic Creatives movement really was about. We just felt like God was doing something and we didn't want to miss out on it. So not knowing what the hell was going to happen, around 90 of us creatives descended upon Dallas and showed up in person for the first summit. What happened there was really kind of crazy, and it's not something that could be really described or hyped up by a podcast, but suffice it to say, we discovered new best friends, kindred spirits that we could share deeply with, to trust, to be in the trenches with. Some of us discovered love. Some of us got new jobs. Some of us decided to move across the country to work together. It was amazing. And in all of that, we discovered a huge mission, a part to play together in God's story of saving the world. You know, many of us have not really been able to believe that there could be an event with Catholic in the name where we could really fit in. Many of us couldn't see how it could be worth being away from our families or putting down our meager freelance savings to jump on a plane and head out, but it paid off for us in all the ways, even in money, because it created a really powerful ecosystem of talented allies that could trust each other. Right now, the second summit is only three months away. 
and we're praying over all the applicants and over who we feel like is supposed to come together for that. And we just want to say, check your September now, because if you get an invite sometime in the next couple of weeks, you need to be ready to get it quick because it will sell out quickly. And trust me when I say we want you there and we don't want you to miss it. I can't wait to see you all in person. And I also can't wait for the life-changing conversations that are going to happen there. Finally, if you don't get an invite this year, I also want to say, keep making. It's not a contest. It doesn't mean that you aren't cool enough or good enough or something like that. It just means that for whatever reason, we weren't able to get to you this year. But once we're through the summit, we do plan to do a series of regional events that will allow us to bring what happened at the summit to all of you. So stay tuned and keep creating. All right, hey everybody, my name is Joe Marshall. Um, thanks for attending uh, my, my session here. Um, embrace the constraints, or I like to call it how to crank your creativity. So hopefully I'm gonna walk you guys through a few instances that I've seen, business cases uh, in, in, in my, own, my own experience, and I'll walk you through some other um, uh, different examples of, of how that type of uh, constraint has produced some very compelling works of business and art. So, um, just to show you guys briefly uh, a little bit about me. Um, uh, yeah, let's go back one. Let's see, is it started? Yeah, it's not yet. Okay, so just very quickly, our agenda. Creativity in the business unit, what does that look like? So, um, you know, oftentimes we can, we can think of operational business like blocking and tackling. What are the things that I have to do to get done today, right? Sweeping the floor, right? So we're gonna see what creativity looks like in that. Um, I'm going to show you guys those examples, and then I'm going to show you how to apply some of these, these examples either in business or in your parish, hopefully. So very, very briefly, uh, I, I don't think we can start this really without sort of defining um, roughly what creativity looks like. So specifically as it relates to the business unit, when you are operationally in the trenches of your company, what is the tool, what is the spark of creativity? And to me, it's really very, very much defining the problem that you have in front of you, knowing the landscape of your resources, so your available tools, right? Not like planning like your Microsoft or IBM with endless resources, and getting very, very close or actually solving the problem that you set out to, to solve. So that to me is creativity. So just very briefly to give you guys a background on myself, um, my company is called uh, Ingo, and what we do is we, we do what's called advocate marketing or influencer marketing. We do this all through social media, and we've done work for folks like Fast Company, IBM. We just started doing uh, a pilot for Manchester United, so that, that like just closed this past week. That's why I threw their logo on there. Um, <laughs> and uh, we do some stuff for uh, fintech events like Money 2020, which is a huge, huge event in Las Vegas. It's now spread to Europe and, and, uh, and China and some of those other places. So really, really cool stuff. Happy to be working for them. And the case study that I'm gonna describe to you is my experience when I came on to the company. I was brought on to do uh, specifically marketing. And like in any situation that we find ourselves on any job, oftentimes you'll, you'll, you'll be hired and then you're gonna be doing other things that you really did intend to do. So, um, there were a few fires that I had to look at and say, okay, I need to kind of put some of these things out. One of those fires was our current client intake process. This is just a little visualization of what we did in order to get an event live. 
So we had a customer and we would send them a presentation and this presentation was right around 24 pages. And we sent that in an email and we asked them to put like user usernames and passwords in these things and it was about 48 questions, which is just nuts, right? Like you're not gonna be able to get operational speed by doing anything like that. So, um, as will oftentimes happen, people will be like, hey, we have this big raging fire, this problem, like what are we gonna do? Like, well, okay, we need to solve it. So, you know, you're, you're, you're gonna be faced with, with things like that and people will be like, you know, just go, just get it done, right? So it's obviously not that easy and we have to do things, right? So in this specific example, we had, we had about 60 days of runway. I, I didn't put that up here, but these were some of those constraints that we put on ourselves. We had three weeks time. It would, uh, one of the requirements was that it could not involve dev because dev was maxed out and trying to fix a legacy system that was broken and very brittle. Mm -hmm. And it needed to have the ability to have a non-technical resource to be able to manage this process um, from, from there on out. So what we did was, is we ended up talking to our customers. We talked to about 60% of them and you know, we didn't have a ton of them so we were able to do that directly. And what we figured out was one of their chief problems was they couldn't save their progress um, going through this, this presentation. Either they didn't know how to save a presentation or they were confused or they didn't have enough information at the time so they would sort of let it sit there and let it stew, and then we'd have to nag people back and forth through emails. It was just very, very um, time consuming. So our solution was that we had basically this revised process. We put it all online. We had the ability to save the user's progress so they could come back and it would send them a link and it would remind them. And at the same time, it was also very easy to manage. So those results, as they actually translated, the first month that we did this, we doubled the amount of events that we took information on, which was great. And we had a few revisions of this process from year one to year two, and our events have grown. Um, so the, the, second, the, the, the first year that, that we had events, we did around 55 total events. The, the year that we <laughs> instituted this process, we did about 250 events. The year after that, we're now right up at 600, and this year we're looking to, to double that as well. Now, truth be told, this is, um, this is a little bit of a Band-Aid solution that we have. I mean, we have now an API that talks to a lot of things, which is great, but a lot of our automation is actually done through point-and-click automation. You guys have probably heard of Zapier, and it's a very, very helpful tool. Non-technical people can use it, hook things up, it's great. So that's what we use currently, and uh, our revenue in, in 2016 was 1.3 million and we're a company of about 10 people. So we're getting there. We're not quite where we want to be yet, but we're certainly getting there. So it's great. Now to translate this into some other examples as it relates to art. Um, if any of you guys are jazz lovers in here, you may have heard of this guy named Keith Jarrett. He is a phenomenal jazz uh, 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 piano player. And he's, he's played with Miles Davis. He's gotten a lot of sort of jazz street cred right over his years. And he got recruited to play an event in Germany by this 17-year-old promoter. He goes to Germany and he has a sold out crowd. He shows up and it's not his piano that he requested. 
and it's also way out of tune. So he's like, I don't want to do this at all, period, end of story. But he didn't want to disappoint the 17-year-old, and he also had a sold-out crowd. So it was raining outside, and he was thinking, you know, can I bring in another piano? He couldn't do that. So they did a emergency tuning of it, and it still wasn't quite right. It was very tinny. And so as a result, he had to play the instrument very, very differently that night. The results of this concert were that this really, really cemented his position in jazz folklore. And this record, this album, called the, uh, the uh, Colton Concert, has sold around 3.5 million copies, which is just up there with Miles Davis kind of blue at the quadruple platinum, which is 4 billion. So um, we are often faced with situations like this that we, we may not view as very favorable towards us they actually can be very, very helpful towards producing something really, really valuable. So another example of this is um, Michelangelo's David, right? We heard a little bit about it earlier, but um, something you, you guys may not know is this was started and then partially finished, right? It was, it, it was started but not, not yet done by a different artist. And so Michelangelo, will, Mi Michelangelo was contracted to finish it and he had some constraints thrown on him. The, the, the person said, you need to finish this in two years. You need to work with the existing marble. We're not you know, getting you any new marble or anything like that. And it needs to look a certain way when it's done. So the result of that, obviously, is, is this amazing statue, right? Which has very striking contrast to the, the size and the, the emotions that are sort of portrayed through the face. But if Michelangelo didn't have those things, he may not have been able to produce something like this that quickly, right? So oftentimes, again, we're faced with those situations. We view them as, you know, bad or terrible or whatever the heck it is, but they actually end up being really, really powerful um, motivators for our own, uh, our own final, final products that, that we're going to make. If any of you guys have seen Chef's Table, which is great if you love food, uh, the opening scene in season one is uh, about this chef named uh, Massimo uh, uh, Botura. And it, it, it talks about him a little bit, and then it goes into this problem where there was an earthquake in the um, uh, Modena region of Italy, where they had around a thousand of these uh, Parmigiano wheels that were damaged. And this is expensive cheese, it's highly regulated, only this cheese can be produced in this region and the government has to give its you know, stamp of approval. So because this earthquake affected a lot of regions, uh, or like this, this region and, and several different products within the region like rice and all these different things, he had to, um, or well he didn't have to, but he saw this as a challenge. What he did is he took the ingredients from the various regions and made a recipe. He took the Parmesan, he boiled it, he let it sit in the fridge overnight, he found out that it separated, it had the proteins and all this other stuff, and then he took some rice from another region that was affected by it and melted the cheese into the rice and, and, and made this recipe that ended up basically standing as a symbol of hope for this disaster-affected region. And the guy's already a three-star Michelin chef, so he didn't need the credibility, but that type of thing, again, was a very constraining situation that he ended up producing something from that was really, really valuable for his community, right? 
this is just a fun, fancy gift of a gift of someone opening up that cheese, which I love. So, um, so getting into the framework, um, the why and the how, you're going to be faced with situations in your work or in your business where people are not going to understand <laughs> what you're trying to do, right? Like, you're going to be like, I want to do this thing and I have this, this idea and I need this money. And people, people are going to look at you strange, right? So we, we operate within difficult structures, committees, different things like that. And so it's oftentimes very, very hard to push that creative vision through. So why do, why do these constraints work? They work because you, it forces you to get creative with what you have. So going back to those definitions that I set up at the beginning of what does creativity look like? You very clearly define the problem and you know what you have in front of you and then you solve that problem. You're able to get through those business challenges that you have in the church or in your business or sometimes even in you know, life and relationships, right? So it sounds counterintuitive, but by putting some shackles on, we actually boost our creativity. Um, if you think of anybody who's training for a marathon or training to become an Olympian or just training for a 5K or anything like that, those things that you end up doing each and every day, like eating right, uh, waking up early to run or you know, running every day or lifting a certain amount, those are all constraints in a way. Like you're not just gonna go and eat whatever the heck you want because it's not gonna help your body build its, its, its uh, you know, resources and, and be able to help you recover as well as you need to do to achieve those goals. So that's kind of why they work and how they work is just to reiterate what we were talking about before, you have to be very, very specific with, with what you're gonna solve. So solve one problem. There's this phrase that everybody loves to use in like VC circles and startups and, and entrepreneurs and stuff. They say, don't boil the ocean. Well, yes, definitely don't boil the ocean. But at the same time, you should solve a very, very specific problem. That's, that's your goal, right? The other pieces of how they work is, it, are, are very much that it's very well defined, right? We're gonna solve one problem and we're gonna work on these components of it. And the final piece is it's measurable. You know that this thing is measurable because of the results that are gonna come from it. So uh, this is a solution sprint framework. I've uh, admittedly sort of doctored this a little bit from an app called Duco. And it's a great little um, design sprint app using Google's Google Ventures framework to run a solution sprint. So uh, at, at the end of this, there's, there's a resource um, slide that gives you guys links and a bunch of other things to that. And I think Marcelino uh, is going to send a lot of this stuff out. But you can take some existing methodologies and frameworks and just apply them to your, to your businesses, right? If you're in a stagnant organization and people are not doing things or not getting things done, you don't have to be a software company to run Agile or to run a stand-up. You could just have a quick meeting every day and literally have everybody in the room standing up telling people what they're working on, right? That type of thing is actually very new to a, to a legacy type organization and that, that type of thing can really, really help. So this just kind of guides you through like what you would do in a week 
Um, and it's built off of that uh, Google Venture Framework. So I would highly, highly recommend you guys download that app. It's great. So finally, when you know, you're all done, you can celebrate like, like Neymar here, right? I mean, you can, you can produce something that's really, really valuable. And it's, it's going to be valuable to your organization at the end of the day. So um, the, the final pieces of this, I wanted to show you guys kind of a bonus case study of something that I was um, involved with early on. And it was called uh, P <coughs> P3. So um, this priest friend of mine was in Arlington, Virginia. And it was in a very good location for young professionals, Catholic professionals. And the DC scene is already pretty vibrant in terms of you know, what's available for us out there. So there's this thing called Theology on Tap, which everybody goes to, and uh, it's certainly fun. Sometimes a little bit awkward, where you have to stand up and you know, do different things, or maybe say hi to people you're really not comfortable with, um, because you keep seeing them again and again at Theology on Tap, and you know, that, 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 that's its own thing. But this thing was devised out of the need to really, really bring people together. And so P3 stands for prayer, penance, and pub, in that order. So every Wednesday night, this, this priest held a, a forum, basically. So from 6.30 to 8, there was confession and, and adoration all at the same time. You could go, you could hang out, you could be with our Lord, you could just chill out and hang out there. And then at 8 o'clock, he gave a talk. And the talk was um, very conversational. He's also an Opus Dei priest, so he kind of has that reflection sort of built in, which is great. But one of the key components was that you could, there, there was absolutely no advertising about this whatsoever. It literally started with three or five people. So what happened over a year was it grew from five to 250 people every Wednesday night, which is absolutely crazy if you think about it. Because we're always so busy and doing so many things, but the fact that this many people were able to consistently make this part of their, their week was really, really incredible. And it's also really, really valuable, right? People wanted to go because um, it was a nice way to break up their week. Um, they got a very informative, educational talk, something that was very relatable. And they also had their sort of quick friend time after the fact where they could just go to the pub and there was no, there was no framework around that time at the pub. I know personally of around 10 marriages that have come just because of this, and I'm sure there's far more. The model itself has also expanded to New York City. So I think you guys can Google like Catholic Underground and P3's there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure it's expanded in other places. That was just the only place that I validated it and saw it on the internet. So um, I'm sure it's kind of going, going in, in other places. But that's the, the type of thing that you can do when you have um, those uh, limits on what you're producing, right? So this is a great, great quote from Steve Jobs, which I really, really, really love. And he, one of the things he said was, he's, he said, I'm as proud, of, I'm as proud of, of many of the things we haven't done as the things we have done. Innovation is saying no to a thousand things. So every time you're at your work or whatever it is that you're doing, if you're not yet done with what you're doing, just say no to it and you can focus and get your stuff done. Um, there's a huge, huge empowering fact in being able to do that and say no in a, in a way that will allow you to further 
those goals that you had already set up for yourself, those tasks that you had already set up for yourself, right? So somebody comes to you and asks you to do something that's unrelated to the project that you're working on, you know, kindly say, well, I've got these other things that I need to work on already and, you know, I'm sorry, but maybe we can revisit this in a week, right? Something like that. As, as Corey was saying, being consultative in nature is one of the things that, that's a great skill to develop and there's endless opportunities throughout every day to kind of nurture that, so. Um, these are some resources, again, for you guys to, to take a look at, click on, download. Um, um, Marcelina will be sending this out, but there are some great books. I put it up over there. Deep Work is an awesome, awesome book written by a guy named Cal Newport, who's a Georgetown uh, professor, who talks about this, like how do we produce at a really, really high level um, while we are existing in a world that's just totally oversaturated with everything, right? How do we, how do we in our parishes operate and produce stuff that's really, really highly valuable that's gonna last a long period of time, right? Um, again, that, that app I mentioned, Duco, is great. It gives you a framework. You can run right through it with any type of solution, um, sprint, if you wanna call it that. And when you go to these organizations that you have to do these things or you know whether you're on a committee at your church you can you can just run through it yourself or you can tell people to download it and look at it but really it's 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 a slow iterative process to kind of get people thinking that way and very clearly defining the problem and very clearly defining those goals so if you guys are able to do some of that stuff you're going to have really really impactful relationships with your business with your friends with your church and that's that's really what we're, we're here and called to do. So um, these are all my credits. I used a ton of stuff. Um, so images, all these different things and articles. Hopefully all that stuff has been helpful for you guys. So thank you so much for attending and happy to answer any questions.